Are y'all just exhausted with 2021? Well, it's almost over now. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. Jeremy Wallace is here to help me close out this year. Jeremy, you know how I usually say that's enough show when we get yeah. to the end of the program. This is enough shows <laughs> for 2021. I'm I'm done with it. I know that people rely on this show for the news each and every week to, to figure out exactly what happened and give it some context and some texture, but I'm done after this. I can't take it anymore this year. Yeah, it's, it's a good time to end 2021, right? And let's just mm-hmm. get yeah. through this and move on to the next one. <laughs> Here's what I tweeted earlier today. My God, what a year in Texas. A deadly winter storm, two quorum breaks, redistricting, critical race theory, carrying handguns with no license in this state, the six-week abortion ban, Abbott versus business, Paxton at the insurrection and under FBI investigation, the pandemic, masks, Beto, Dowd, Musk, McConaughey. Anything else? Am I missing things? Well, of course I was missing things. People started to tweet at me and say, well, what about this and what about that? It really was exhausting. I don't want to sound like we're complaining. It's just there was never a moment during this year where we almost uh, were, were not just in crisis mode all the time. Yeah, yeah. we were lacking that sleepy in-between elections year that sometimes you get. Uh, it was just constantly on. It just feels like there hasn't been a break in Texas politics uh, for now going on what feels like four straight years, but whatever. Yeah. However, you did point out in the pre-show that when Beto O'Rourke says he's not doing any more events, that means we're probably really going into the holiday yeah. break because that guy has uh, unlimited energy. He never stops, but he's even stopping. Yeah. Now. Well, yeah, of course, he is an unemployed man driving around the state, so he has a little bit more time <laughs> on his hand. But yeah, in this case, right. yeah, he's finally going home, you know, for a little holiday break before he hits the road again. So, yeah, when that guy, you know, doesn't see any need to campaign during the holidays, mm-hmm. you know. What kind of shows can we put out? <laughs> right. Well, people are starting to tune out, but I know that folks want to be able to listen to something during the holidays. So I wanted to give them something thoughtful. I was looking out across the whole country at the way that so many states now, Democratic states and Republican states, are looking to Texas for the blueprint for how they want to tackle certain issues. This is pretty fascinating. Remember the uh, fact that in the abortion case in Texas, the six-week ban that I mentioned, the enforcement mechanism is private lawsuits by individuals. Anybody can go around suing uh, abortion providers or anyone who is seen as or accused of aiding and abetting an abortion. And the state is specifically prohibited from enforcing the law, which creates the situation where other states might want to take that um, blueprint or that playbook and apply it to other things. And some Democratic states want to apply it to guns. In California, the governor, Gavin Newsom, says he wants to take what the Supreme Court has, for now at least, allowed to stand and use it to punish the manufacturers of assault rifles. Check this out from CNN. California's Governor Gavin Newsom is promising that he'll implement gun control measures in his state by copying the legal tactics used by Texas to enact what is essentially an aban on a ban on abortion. The Supreme Court has let Texas go forward with a law that allows private citizens across the state to sue anyone who helps someone more than six weeks pregnant get an abortion. In a statement, Newsom said in part, California will use that authority to protect people's lives where Texas used it to put women in harm's way. That's Caitlin Collins on CNN. Now, you might think this is just sort of a cutesy one-off thing with, you know, the governor of California sort of sticking it to the people who agree with the Texas law. But then you have New York Attorney General Tish James, who was asked on The View on ABC whether Newsom's idea is an effective legal strategy. The answer is yes. When I heard about that, I said said to my team, we need to follow his lead. And the reason why that is, is because gun manufacturers and gun distributors in this country are immunized. No liability whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They're the only industry that is protected in this country. And given the carnage, and given the fact that this is the ninth anniversary of Sandy Hook, I am sick and tired of prayers and individuals whose hearts go out to all of those who have lost lives. Mm -hmm. We can do something about it. And what we need to do is hold these gun manufacturers and these gun distributors liable. 
seeing private citizens take action. Is that the, do you, do you make so that the, difference? And so the issue is allowing private citizen, and is that a way to get around, mm -hmm. um, again, this uh, immunization, the fact that they have been immunized, and the fact that we don't hold them liable. And so we are reviewing it. We are talking to California. And so this is a first. Yes, the Office of Attorney General Letitia James mm -hmm. is looking at that model, and I congratulate Governor Newsom. So those are Democrats saying that they want to take advantage of the legal structure that Texas put together, which we reported on for months yeah. here, Jeremy, and people noticed in September. But take that legal structure and apply it to gun manufacturers to go after them. So but if you listen, if you think this is only Democrats who are doing this, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, no liberal for sure, says he's going to promote legislation in that state, in Florida, banning the teaching of critical race theory. So this is a more of a conservative cause, right? But the enforcement mechanism for it would be, you guessed it, private lawsuits that would be filed by parents. We are going to be including in this legislation giving parents a private right of action to be able to enforce the prohibition on CRT, and they get to recover attorney's fees uh, when they prevail, which is very important. In all my years of covering Texas politics, specifically in politics generally, I never thought we would get to the point where Republicans would be championing, creating causes of action, opening the courthouse doors for as many lawsuits as possible. But we talked about this earlier on the show. And as the months have dragged on, Jeremy, it has occurred to me that I think one of the biggest developments in Texas specific to this year, maybe over the last 24 months or so, but really this year, is what we talked about with the rise of the right-wing trial lawyer, where you have the uh, very cons uh, conservative activists of the state who support more lawsuits as long as the people being sued are the ones who did things that they don't like, when for decades in this state, the whole idea was cutting down on what those same folks would call frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, 10 years ago, it would have been hard not to find a Republican who's talking about tort reform and how we need to rein in, you know, these trial attorneys that are making cost of business higher, right? And now here you have mm -hmm. like everybody in the nation following a blueprint Texas has for letting everybody sue everybody for anything. <laughs> it's like, sue your neighbor here. It's like, can I sue over this, over that, over this? Sure. It's like we're just getting, you know, we're talking about guns and we're talking about critical race theory in Florida, but mm -hmm. there's going to be other things. It's like, you know, this is going to be a much wider playing field. Absolutely. Now, if anybody thinks that these folks, DeSantis uh, or the AG in uh, New York or the governor in California, if anyone thinks they're getting out over their skis, as the saying goes, I don't think so. Let's go back to when the abortion law was argued at the Supreme Court, and they were mainly talking about uh, the process here and whether or not legal action could go forward about the abortion law, Senate Bill 8. It was Justice Brett Kavanaugh, again, no liberal, who had this sort of terse exchange with the Texas Solicitor General, Judd Stone, and Kavanaugh wanted to know what would happen if a state used the same technique to ban assault-style rifles or go after gun manufacturers. Everyone who sells an AR-15 uh, is liable for a million dollars to any citizen. Uh, would that kind of law be exempt from uh, pre-enforcement review in federal court? My answer is on whether or not the whether or not federal court review is available does not turn on the nature of the right. So we can put in religious liberty. So we can assume that this will be across the board uh, equally applicable to all constitutional rights. Yes, but I'd add one more point, Your Honor. Even when, and you've also said the amount of the penalty doesn't matter. Million dollars per sale. You know, anyone, a state passes a law, anyone who declines to provide a good or service for use in a same-sex marriage, million dollars is sued by anyone in the state. That, that's exempt from pre-enforcement review. Again, Your Honor, what we'd have to have, for example, in is that a yes or? Yes, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Yes, that's a yes. That's a yes from the Solicitor General of Texas, not from the governor of California, not from the attorney general of uh, New York or New Jersey, um, not from liberal Democrats, but from the guy who represents the conservative state government of Texas in front of the Supreme Court saying that if somebody wanted to pursue a policy of going after you know people selling guns or manufacturing guns, then this way of doing it would be exempt from judicial review. And so now you have to think that since the Supreme Court let it go forward and they said that other 
Um, you know, other lawsuits can still move forward as well, but it's moving back to the Fifth Circuit, which is pretty conservative. That doesn't bode well for the bode well for the plaintiffs, Jeremy. I think that if you look at this in its totality, we're going into what is uncharted territory for the way states may approach these issues. Yeah. Yeah, we have an entirely different structure of enforcement now. It's like, and you heard like these, you know, the pro, you know, life groups in Texas were trying to find a way to build a better mousetrap. Well, they built one, uh, but it just may catch far more than just mice, right? It's good. This is going to be one of these things that I think they've kind of set themselves up for setting a precedent that maybe someday they're not going to like on some issues. Mm-hmm. Well, this gun issue definitely is going to be part of the race for governor. We mentioned Beto O'Rourke. He's continuing to push on the issue of people carrying handguns with no license. So we've talked about this. Uh, and I, I think that he's sharpened his argument a little bit. He's been kind of going in this direction. And you've watched a lot of his uh, rallies. But this was at a uh, rally in Amarillo. And he said, Governor Greg Abbott's support for allowing people to carry handguns with no license is, listen to this, anti-police whatever he might say this governor really does not trust law enforcement because when sheriffs and police chiefs members of law enforcement in our community said mr governor please do not sign that permitless carry bill into law over the last five years we in law enforcement have denied 37,000 permits to carry a loaded gun in public because those people represented too great a threat to our officers and the people they were sworn to serve and protect. And by the way, Mr. Governor, there had to have been tens of thousands more who never applied for a license to carry a firearm because they'd never passed the background check. Well, now every single one of them is loaded on our streets. And violent criminals at a time of rising violent crime are in no way checked through that license to carry program. As governor, we will repeal that program because we trust law enforcement. We want to see greater public safety. And we want to make sure that we protect the Second Amendment as well as protecting the lives of the people in our lives. Here's what's different about this, in my estimation. It is usually Texas Democrats who are on defense when it comes to guns and the issue of the Second Amendment. Uh, Usually you have Democrats having to first say in this state, certainly at the legislature, they'd have to say, look, I'm pro Second Amendment, as Beto said to you during your exclusive interview that you had with him on the day that he announced for governor, Jeremy. He was talking about being a pro gun guy, just not, you know, as far as he didn't want to go as far as uh, Republicans in the state have gone. It's usually Democrats having to have this sort of defensive language about it. In this case, Governor Abbott's having to defend the law that he signed a little bit. He said in response, so you had Beto say all that. And then on Twitter, Governor Abbott pointed to a Fox News story about a woman in Houston who shot and killed a man during an alleged robbery attempt. And Abbott tweeted this, quote, Robert Francis O'Rourke wants to disarm Texans like this woman who defended herself. Criminals don't care what the law is. They will carry guns anyway. Citizens deserve the right to defend themselves. That's what the Second Amendment is all about. And I will protect the Second Amendment. Close quote. Seems to me like this is an actual fight with both of them, you know, really with the long knives out and talking about this issue and what the policy should be for the entire state of Texas and not just Democrats cowering in a corner like they usually do when it comes to this. Yeah. And listen to like, you know, everything about O'Rourke's speech was interesting to me because it was in Amarillo and he had a, you know, a rally full of Democrats applauding when he Mm says we need to protect the Second Amendment. It's like. Wow, what a what a you right. know, it's like that. You don't get a lot of applause lines in you know Democratic audiences if you say we're going to protect the Second Amendment and people. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. you know to be wait wait what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like but you know it, it's an interesting you know way for O'Rourke to continue this. Uh, is it a re-evolution to go back to what he was in the 2018 campaign on guns versus mm-hmm. what happened during the. Uh, the, the the presidential run where he he started sounding right. a little bit more liberal on gun control than I think maybe mm-hmm. he had been in 2018. I think he still holds a lot of those same views. Don't get me wrong, but I think now he's mm-hmm. trying to find a way to emphasize something else. While Abbott wants to continue to say this guy wants to take your guns, but if if, yeah. if O'Rourke is continually saying everywhere that I'm going to protect the Second Amendment and protect you from being shot from an AR-15. 
yeah, it ha- it has the potential to, and who knows how this is going to play out, but the potential to uh, allow for more nuance in yeah. the debate. The the policies that Republicans have uh, adopted now at the state level, something that uh, even Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick had trepidation about. Very right? good point. You know, it was it was the Texas Senate was where the uh, permitless carry bill hit a roadblock for a while because the lieutenant governor was not thrilled with that and Senate Republicans were not thrilled with it. And they were the ones who tapped the brakes on it and said, hey, let's listen to the same people that Beto was talking about, law enforcement and the Texas uh, prosecutors, uh, for example, who were very upset about the way the law was constructed as it came out of the Texas House. The Senate moderated the bill a little bit, at least to put in some uh, more penalties for people who might be caught with a gun if they're not supposed to have it, some criminals. And the Texas House ended up having to go along with that. Uh, but it was uh, <laughs> it was very conservative people who were worried about the way this law is put together. Uh, so we'll see how it plays out. Speaking of the race for governor, a new television ad running on Fox News Channel and on CNN over the next couple of days, at least, I think, highlights some GOP criticism of Governor Abbott's handling of the deadly winter freeze. Now, we have heard a lot from uh, Beto O'Rourke, of course, about the way Abbott, how did he say it? Uh, These jokers couldn't even keep the lights on, is the way O'Rourke was talking about it at some rallies before. But uh, now you have the appearances of some Republicans on Fox News Channel right around the time of the winter storm being featured in this ad uh, that is running again on uh, Fox News and CNN. We do, as a state, have the ability to ensure that we do not run out of power. The leading energy state has no power. So as you can hear, Abbott was incorrect when he said that we would be able to keep the lights on. Um, And of course, these folks are trying to remind people that he's saying that again as we head into the winter months. Abbott, as we uh, highlighted here on the show, has said he can, quote, guarantee the lights will stay on. This group is called Our Texas PAC. They're the ones paying for the ad. They say that he lied and Texans died. I'm moderating that a little bit, modulating a little bit and saying he was not right. Now, they pointed specifically to comments from Republican Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller, who was on Fox News slamming Abbott about all this earlier this year. Governor Abbott, he needs to own this. They didn't prepare. They knew we were going to have a real hard winter. You're a day late, the dollar's short. They're arguing, Jeremy, that this is a character issue. It's not just a policy issue of, and you know, this is the discussion that we have a lot in Austin is is uh, centered around what policy changes were made uh, to change things about the electricity market in Texas. Those things are important. In fact, this afternoon, as we uh, record the show, the Public Utility Commission is going through their finalization, I think, of the uh, electricity market, what it's supposed to look like following some of the statutes that were passed earlier this year. You have Abbott talking about how, hey, we passed uh, 12 bills, at least, that I signed into law. These make some uh, progress when it comes to the electricity market. Uh, But nothing about the electricity market is fundamentally different in Texas from what it looked like last February. And as I was talking to a friend about this, uh, who's, I think, a pretty sharp uh, political observer, they said, you know, when it comes to Beto talking about the electricity grid, if he is um, seen as rooting for failure, at some point that starts to reflect negatively on him, I think. You know, people don't want, people don't want to hear uh, you know, that you think things are going to go badly and and just point the finger of blame all the time. The balance on that would be to say, look, I think Beto is trying to get Abbott on the record, which Abbott has just on a silver platter offered up the quotes, right? I can guarantee the lights will stay on. If they don't, you're going to see that uh, clip played over and over again that he said uh, that they would stay on. Um, But look, if you do think as a Democrat that it's a coin flip as to whether the electricity grid is going to hold up, and, and that's how you're going to win the election. If you're going to push in everything on that, it's not a coin flip. It's like going to the roulette wheel and putting all your money on one color and one number and hoping that it pays off. If it does, you win big. If not, you lose. Yeah, what do you yeah, Given how, how many people lost power, it's like, that's the thing. It's like so many people felt that in so many different cities all across Texas. It's such a prime issue. For you know any Democrat, you know, but you know certainly Rourke's doing a good job, I think, early on, and just making it such a focus. It's like you know if it seems like you can run a whole campaign with a slogan, you know, Beto Rourke, I'll keep the lights on. 
You know, it's like that's all you have to do. And it's like, and mm-hmm. even if the you know the grid doesn't fail this you know winter, let's hope not. You know, I certainly can't mm-hmm. handle another right. plumbing bill <laughs> thanks to the last no. one. But you know, if we're yeah. going to get into another, you know, even if we don't have another uh, grid failure, the same applies. You know, Aurora can still make that case, I think, because again, remember, remember all those terrible stories of people dying, of of the child yes. who froze to death, you know, of of the veteran who froze, you know died in his pickup truck trying to get oxygen you know oh, it's right. like all mm-hmm. those stories like that affected all of us it's like it, it's not going to take long for somebody to like you know understand like the, the depth of how uh, how it affected them even if you're campaigning right, right even if the power stays on let's hope it stays on you know i hope abbott right. is right that like everything is set and look and we know from some of the post game a big problem with the grid failure was that there's so many you know, gas companies that were offline, mm-hmm. you know, that you know, I am almost certain yep. Abbott has told the PUC and uh, the, the Utilities Commission and, you know, ERCOT that uh, don't put so many offline. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's have a little bit more cushion, you know, no more, no more yeah. like half the, uh, you know, gas producers are offline, you know, during the winter. And we just try to hope that solar lives through the whole thing. Yeah, right. I saw uh, this week where one of the big electricity uh, generators, Calpine, is running digital ads to try to assure Texans that the lights are going to stay on. So it's not just politicians doing this. It's the industry also trying to send the message to people that things are going to be a fine. It's all going to be fine. We're we're doing our part. Now, the the Calpine ad that I saw, and it's one of those uh, ads you see it rolls before the YouTube videos that you might watch, or uh, it'll show up on different websites. Um, they didn't say they could guarantee that the grid would stay uh, just fine. They said that they are doing their part, which you might think that would be the kind of thing that Abbott would say about this stuff. I, I, I do think that to your point about how bad it was during that, uh, you know, five days of, I had no power for five days, um, you know, people in the deep freeze for a week, people dying, tragedy all over the place. And to the point that that ad was making, Abbott said that week, the lights would stay on. Yeah. Right. And and the point, the point being, either he was not telling the truth, that, that's their argument, that he was lying, that he, he had more information that he was not sharing, or just the fact that he was wrong should be enough it, for Democrats to make a decent argument here that you need new leadership. It shouldn't have to be. It, I think there's a, an expectations game going on. If the Republicans can set it up, and this is what they're trying to do, if they can set it up such that um, the Democrats basically lose as long as we don't have any electricity grid failure, then they've then they've done a pretty good job of setting themselves up politically. If Democrats make the argument that, look, we hope the electricity stays on. Our point is that it never should have gone off in the first place. If they can make that argument effectively, then you don't have to have another tragedy. The fact that you had one in the first place is yeah, enough. One, right? The, so, the incompetency mm-hmm. that led us to that. It was like, and, and not saying right. Bat, Abbott or any particular person, but you know, for a decade, you know, you know, look, the, the Houston Chronicles investigative team's done some great work on this. I really tell, suggest people go look back at some yeah, of that. For sure, it's like there've been so many failures over the years. You know, with the electric grid, things that we knew were wrong that people chose not to fix. It's like that incompetency. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what, you know, I think opponents can run on this year. I don't care who you are. I think other Republicans can do that. We've seen that a little right. bit from Alan West saying, like, he right. would, you know, be on top of this better. You know, it's like you can make the case, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know, you know, I have no idea how Rourke will phrase it. But he can say, look, Greg Abbott's a nice guy and all, but he was just in over his head when it comes to managing grid. And how do I know that? And I would just start showing pictures of the people who died, you know, just like and remind people it's like he just wasn't ready for this. You know, yeah, I think Democrats, uh, as always, it would be um, paralysis by analysis because they'll get down into the weeds of how the electricity market works in Texas and try to explain that to people instead of doing what you're talking about, which is make an emotional connection with people, which Republicans have been so much better at. Make it about values, make it about character. And do they really care about the people who died during the storm? Do they really care that you had a huge uh, bill, uh, you know, for your, your busted pipes and and whatever else, whatever other damage you had at your home because of that? And I think the proof here that that's an argument for the general election is that the guy who, in my estimation, has the best antenna for Texas politics, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, has been arguing basically on the side of Beto O'Rourke that we need to do more 
when it comes to the electricity grid, while Greg Abbott has been saying, no, we do not. Did you see this uh, just, I think it's for the legal nerds out there, for all these attorneys who I love them, all those who have subscriptions to Quorum Report, they started sending me text messages this week when the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals came down and said that the attorney general can no longer go around just on his own um, prosecuting cases of election fraud. It should be pointed out right at the outset here that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is all Republican judges, just like the Texas Supreme Court. And in our system in Texas, this is all bifurcated. The Texas Supreme Court is for civil cases, civil matters. The the criminal court I mentioned is the highest court for criminal cases. And therefore, there's no appeal after this, right? He can't do anything. Uh, the The only thing that could happen uh, if Paxton wanted to go back out there and, and prosecute more of these cases of election fraud that he's been so concerned about, he'd have to get the legislature to change the yeah. law and potentially change the Constitution to overrule what the court has done here, to change what the court has done here. You've seen these cases, right, where Paxton will put out from his office a news release that says so-and-so in whatever county, sometimes, usually it's a small county, sometimes in a larger county, this person is charged with 147 you know, counts of uh, felony uh, you know, uh, uh, election fraud for various things, like this case in Limestone County, that's near Waco, where as this was, uh, as this was first reported, it was breaking news. New tonight, a Limestone County social worker is being charged with election fraud. Attorney General Ken Paxton says Kelly Reagan Brunner, a social worker in the Mejia State Living Center, will face 134 felony counts for attempting to sign up residents with development disabilities to vote without their permission, signatures, or consent. You ever see, uh, you know, where people will joke about, you could just have news mad libs, where it, the, the story looks exactly the same, you just plug yeah. in different names. These stories get some traction out there, especially on TV news. They love these stories because a news release comes out from the uh, attorney general's office. It says so-and-so got charged with election fraud. It sounds just like this one from uh, a report in Austin uh, about a similar case down in Bear County. The Texas attorney general says a woman from San Antonio was arrested on voter fraud charges. Raquel Rodriguez was charged with election fraud, illegal voting, unlawfully assisting people voting by mail and unlawfully possessing an official ballot. Yeah, that was from KXAN in Austin. They were reporting on what had happened uh, in San Antonio. Did you hear that? Th those news reports sound almost exactly the same, right? The attorney general's office has been fighting to try to be able to continue to do this. But in this stunning rebuke, again, this is an all Republican court. The vote on the court was eight to one against Paxton, saying that he cannot continue to unilaterally go around the state prosecuting cases of election fraud. Now, election fraud is one of his main organizing principles for his reelection, right? He was at the insurrection in Washington. He was there at the rally before it started uh, to talk about election integrity. He's the guy who sued on behalf of President Trump to try to overturn election yeah. results in other states based on some argument that there must have been some election fraud. Every court that looked at that said no. And there were 60, 70, 80 cases of this that were you know, litigated in different courts around the country. Uh, we had reported here on the show that uh, Trump has said privately that Paxton's the only guy in the whole country out of all the attorneys general he could have gone to. He was the only one who would file that lawsuit on his behalf to try to uh, overturn the election results in other states. This comes down to, in Texas, what is a question of separation of powers. So interesting. I saw where the uh, Prosecutors Association was putting out some information about who prosecutes crimes in Texas. And in this state, the district attorneys are part of the judicial branch of government. And in the, you know, you think about the fact that they get elected locally, but who do they represent? And in the case of, you know, a murder, in the case of a rape, in the case of any of these felonies, the district attorney doesn't represent the county of Harris, right, or the county of Travis. They represent the state of Texas, right? Now comes the state of Texas with these charges, right? So they are representing the state in the court. The attorney general is not a prosecutor. He's part of the 
executive branch. And his lane basically is to be in the Texas Supreme Court and in other courts like the like the United States Supreme Court. You know, if um, if uh, the state gets sued over something, there's some civil matter to be dealt with. That's generally what the attorney general will handle. Now, there are some exceptions to this. You have uh, sometimes uh, maybe a district attorney has a uh, conflict of interest and they might ask the attorney general to take over that case or assist. Or sometimes in smaller communities, they might just ask the AG to help them uh, when they don't have the resources to go after something. But what this tells you, it takes one of the things right out of the, it takes an arrow out of the quiver for, uh, for Paxton to go around the state trying to find these examples of voter fraud to then prosecute, which, you know, for his campaign and for his political uh, you know career uh, has been a very important thing to him. Oh, well, yeah. And the fact that like the legislature is giving him more money uh, to have more people in their election fraud division. You know, just now raises the question, now what are those guys going to do, right? You know, it's like, yeah, do they right. have a lot of extra free time on Fridays now or what? But yeah, so, you know, <laughs> you can see how yes, this was going to be so, you know, such an issue for Paxton to run throughout this Republican primary he's facing uh, in a really competitive mm-hmm. Republican primary. And now that's been taken off the table. Uh, and so it's just going to be an interesting, like, how does he even like talk about this issue going forward? Paxton, in a tweet uh, in response to the ruling, said that now, thanks to the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals, Soros funded district attorneys will have sole power to decide whether election fraud has occurred in Texas. We do know that George Soros, a Democratic mega donor, has invested in some of these races around the state. Uh, he was a big supporter of Kim Ogg, who's the Harris County uh, district attorney, and I believe gotten involved, uh, had, had also gotten involved in Travis County and some other places. Um, but again, it's an all Republican court, which Paxton let out. He, he left, out, left yeah. that fact out of that tweet. It's all Republican. He couldn't say these are liberal judges who are doing this. It's, it's all Republicans. In fact, uh, at least one of them, um, if I have this right, Jesse McClure, uh, one of the judges, the, the one who actually authored the opinion, was appointed by Greg oh, Abbott. There you go. So these are not liberals. These are not liberals who decided that he can't go around doing this. At the same time that you have all these fights about election fraud, which we should say, and it's, it's almost to the point of parody now, it, 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 you can't... Um, I don't know how SNL handles any of this stuff anymore when they're making fun of politicians. It, the parody handles itself. Um, there is no widespread election fraud. You have to say that it, it in any discussion about this stuff. Is there some election fraud? Sure. It happens, yep. right? But in in Texas, we've seen it be prosecuted, dealt with. When uh, Brian Hughes the senator who was carrying the big elections bill all almost all year for eight months. Jeremy, I only ever heard him talk about one case in his yeah. district of, of voter fraud that was being prosecuted. Uh, and over and over again, you had Republicans saying, well, we have had all these complaints of voter fraud and people are worried about voter fraud. And Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick saying that people are so concerned about voter fraud. Well, you know, if you continue to tell people something that's not true all the time, you get into this feedback loop where if Abbott, Patrick, Paxton, and the rest never stop saying that there's rampant voter fraud and we've got to root it out to the point that Abbott ordered the Secretary of State's office to go ahead and audit some counties over it after uh, the former president, Donald Trump, had said, there's got to be more votes for me in Texas. You know, you heard Trump say that he won. Yeah, he said, yeah, I won Texas, but I would have won it by more. If there hadn't been all that fraud going on, Trump wants an audit of the entire state. And you have these um, you have these Republican office holders like Paxton and Abbott trying to do everything they can to sort of placate Trump and his supporters about it without actually doing the thing that he wants, which is the audit of the entire state. Right. So while all that is playing out, the reports out of Washington now, I saw this at NBC News, uh, they indicated that the U.S. Senate is giving up on the president's big social safety net legislation the BBB, the Build Back Better uh, bill, they're, they're going to shelve that for now so they can focus on voting rights. That is to the delight of someone like Congresswoman uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson, who is retiring. She said the last thing that she would really like to see happen before she is officially retired, before she's out of there, is passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. There are a number of issues 
that I've worked on but never really got there. Um, but that's what keeps you going. You just keep thinking it. the next time you'll do better, the next time you'll do better. Um, but I believe strongly in fairness and justice, and I believe our nation also does. Uh, we might be divided on some of the details, uh, but as long as I'm around, I'm going to be pushing those issues. And right now, I really do think that people need to have the opportunity to vote for whomever they wish freely and not be intimidated. I'm afraid that the legislation that our Texas uh, legislature passed this session uh, it, it will interfere with that. That's Johnson on WFAA television in Dallas-Fort Worth. Now, I did hear immediately from some Democrats uh, at the state level, Jeremy, who said that they fear that what's going to happen is because the Democratic leadership in Washington has given up on at least, you know, a big part. Well, I shouldn't say at least they're, they're giving up for now on the president's big agenda. Some Democrats here were saying that they feel they, they fear what they're going to get now from Democrats in Washington is just lip service on voting rights and that they won't actually move forward with anything to get it passed. Of course, the Senate has been the roadblock. The U.S. House has moved forward, I guess, with the bill uh, that they've talked about a couple of times. Some of these pieces of legislation, the, the U.S. House has moved forward with a Democratic majority. The rules in the U.S. Senate get a little trickier, although it was noted that on something like the debt limit, which could melt down the entire economy and cause a recession, you know, once again, uh, that a carve out to the filibuster was made possible on that by the U.S. Uh, Senate Democratic leadership. But when it comes to voting rights, they are simply not there and uh, the votes aren't there for that to, to even carve out, uh, you know, some sort of exception for the filibuster. So is it something that's actually going to pass or something that we may just see some debate about? It's an open question. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the kind of rallying issue that Democrats need going into a midterm election. They need something to fire up the base. Uh, and so, you know, it, you can kind of see them shifting from, OK, these plans that were aimed at, you know, the more independent, moderate type of voters of the world, you know, infrastructure, you know, mm. things like that. And now we're going to get into what we normally get in an election cycle. You know, even though the Democrats control instead of Republicans, you know, in this case, what we're going to get are Democratic wish list things, you know, in some form, at least, because like the base, the people who are going to be out there trying to knock on doors and win support for all your candidates, they need something to tell people. They need to tell people, you know, like if you're walking through the fifth ward of Houston, why should I come out yeah. and vote? It's like in this case, if we mm -hmm. had to say, because we're trying to pass a voter rights bill that will do X. Who knows what that X is ultimately going to be? Because, again, like you pointed yeah. out, the U.S. Senate still has, last I checked, Joe Manchin in it. <laughs> and just yeah. because they have a majority, it doesn't mean Joe Manchin, <laughs> the Democrat from West Virginia, is going to be on board and he can change any bill he wants. He, you know, they, they, I, the joke was, you know, how are you doing, President Manchin? You know, how, how are you doing today? Right. You know, because he kind of is running all of the legislation and can stop anything Joe Biden wants because he is the key vote in the U.S. Senate. Well, we will keep an eye on that uh, space. Watch that space as we go into 2022. Former President Trump is returning to Texas this weekend. Jeremy, you're heading to Houston to check out the event. And it's uh, him and former Fox News star Bill O'Reilly are going around the country. And I, I think they're appearing in Houston and Dallas. Those are the Texas yeah. dates. But what is this event? Yeah, this is the last, you know, you know, two days on the trip, quite honestly, Houston and Dallas. Okay. They did a couple of shows in, in Florida as well, where it's just basically a Q&A between you know, O'Reilly and Trump uh, about whatever they're talking about. They, they're billing it as a history tour, you know, which is kind yeah. of where O'Reilly tries to write books on. Uh, but that history mm -hmm. includes... Mr. President, why did you decide to do X, you know, during your mm -hmm. you know, time? And, you know, you know, I'll be, I'll show my cards right ahead. You know, one of the reasons I'm going is because I want to hear what he has to say, you know, about all these text messages that came out this week that even his son was texting, you know, uh, the White House to say the president needs to say something. He needs to stop and tell yeah. these people at the Capitol to go home during the riot. All right. It's like, I want to mm -hmm. hear O'Reilly. What does he say to Trump? And does Trump say anything to this crowd of pretty loyal Trump supporters, 
You know, if you're paying yeah, a couple hundred dollars to come watch, you know, there's some people who are going to pay $5,000 to sit in that arena to hear what they have really? to say, apparently. Uh, <laughs> I'll believe it when I see them. <laughs> and I'll ask them some questions. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's like, why did you pay $5,000 yeah, to hear a Trump rally? <laughs> I hope uh, maybe they get an autographed book or something out of that, at least yeah, from O'Reilly. They have to be a VIP. Uh, maybe they get an autograph. Right? Maybe they get an autograph from Trump too. But uh, getting the O'Reilly, it'll be interesting to see what questions he actually asks him. I think this is more of a uh, probably more of a love fest than maybe a Chris Wallace interview. Yeah. For uh, sure. which of course you saw Chris Wallace <laughs> Without departing. Without a doubt, that's a true statement. <laughs> yeah, uh, I saw Chris Wallace departing uh, Fox News Channel this week, and some folks were saying it was just the right time for him to leave Fox News Channel as it came out that not only was Donald Trump Jr. texting uh, the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on uh, January 6th to please get uh, the president to stop this. A couple of people noted it was interesting that Donald Trump Jr. couldn't just text his dad directly. You know, he had to go through the White House chief of staff, but then also you had these Fox News hosts, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, I think Brian Kilmeade, maybe one more, who were texting and saying that Trump is trashing his own legacy by letting these people ransack the Capitol there on January 6th. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be interested to see your report on that from Houston over the weekend. Candidate filings. We talked last week about how it's, you know, put up or shut up time in Texas that uh, on Monday of this week, the candidate filing period was closed and you always get a few surprises. I'll take these. Uh, I'll, let me talk about two things specifically. One on Monday in the morning, I started to get all these text messages from people um, and nobody on the order of Laura Ingram or <laughs> Sean Hannity, but all these text messages from people who were saying this, they were asking this question, is this legit? Is Rick Perry running for governor? And what they were sending me was the screenshot um, from the Republican Party of Texas website where they compile the list of who has filed so far to run for office um, at the state level and at the uh, at the level where uh, count where districts overlap counties. This all gets a little confusing because if you have a district uh, that is wholly contained within one county, you can just file yeah. there. But if it if it takes in multiple counties, you got to file with the state uh, uh, party, and it uh, and that means that it might not even be until next week until you get a really complete list of everybody who's filed for everything, and then you may see a lot of residency challenges against some of these folks who have filed in different places. It looked like there were a few people, and this was just my cursory glance at the list of some people who have filed. Jeremy, some people who clearly don't live in the district that they filed yeah. in for Texas House and Texas Senate. Some people had their uh, applications rejected. All of that's going to come out in the wash, I think. But people were texting and saying, is Governor Perry looking to make a comeback? Well, there is sort of a competitor to the quorum report here. It's a small uh, newsletter, which I won't even mention the name. But they put out a, a breaking news alert on Monday saying, Rick Perry is running for the GOP nomination. And within about five minutes, they put out um, sort of a correction and said, actually, it's the other Rick Perry who's running. As I was texting with people, it was, the other, there's no other Rick Perry. What are they talking about? Um, some guy from Parker County, whose name is Ricky Lynn Perry, has filed for governor in the Texas GOP primary. And I think it could be a factor if Governor Abbott has a problem getting to 50% on Election Day in the primary, right? I mean, there was some indication that this guy who is filed as Rick Perry, who is not the former governor, just some other dude. And I don't think anybody got in contact with this person. I saw where some of the newspapers had tried to call this guy, Ricky Lynn Perry, and ask him for comment. Why are you running? And they couldn't get him on the phone, at least not that I saw just yet. Uh, there was some reporting to the effect that this guy, Rick Perry, who's not the Rick Perry, but this other Rick Perry, has uh, some ties to supporters of Don Huffines, who's also running for the GOP nomination. So people started to ask, is this some trickery going on? Dave Carney, who is the chief political consultant for Governor Abbott, had said this was a stupid pet trick, that people are trying to hoodwink the voters by making people think there's a guy named Rick Perry in the race. And you may, you may actually have to see, or we may see, uh, Rick Perry, the former governor, have to come out and make a statement and say, actually, this is not me, guys. Yeah. You may have to do some uh, robocalls or radio ads or TV ad or something to say, that's not me. Educate 
primary voters about this, because you could imagine, let's say, okay, how many people are running against Governor Perry at this point? It, it's a bigger list than we had before. You've got Don, ha- Don Huffines, who I mentioned, the former state senator. You've got, I'll say, conservative entertainer, Chad Prather, who I'm using the word entertainer loosely. Um, you have Alan West, who's the former Republican Party chairman and former Florida congressman who you covered there in Florida. Uh, you have this guy, Ricky Lynn Perry, who's going as Rick Perry. Uh, is there any there? Was there another name or two? There were just sort of random names that were thrown. Yeah, in there's as some well. other people in there, but nobody, you know, with whom past electoral experience, no, say, people right. wouldn't recognize. Nobody who anybody would know. So, so where this would become a problem for Governor Abbott is under the Texas election law. If you are in a primary, as he is, if you can get over fifty percent, then you don't have to have a runoff. You don't have to have, uh, you know, to campaign for another six weeks or whatever it is. Uh, you don't have to expend more of your resources. If you can win more than fifty percent, you win outright, no runoff, and you're the nominee. You go on to November if you're Governor Abbott, and you take on Beto O'Rourke in November, presumptively. So he would like that's the scenario he would like, and that Dave Carney would like. I think a couple of reasons. Um, spring to mind for why Carney was uh, especially vocal about this. One is that we had heard rumors at quorumreport.com for, and we didn't report on this at the time, but it's worth talking about now, rumors that the former governor, Rick Perry, had actually considered running for governor again because he's not satisfied with Abbott for a variety of reasons. And we've talked about many times here that it's not just Democrats who have been upset with Abbott over the last two years, right? A lot of Republicans upset with him, which is why he has a robust field of Republicans running against him this time in the primary. Um, It never came to fruition and never got to the point that we were going to report on it in real time that Governor Perry, the former governor, was looking at running to get his old job back, sort of a comeback story. Uh, But it was my understanding that Governor Abbott and his political team took it seriously enough that they did have a conversation with Rick Perry about it to get his assurance that he was not going to run. So they may have to call on him again to say, hey, can you do some messages for us some mail pieces, robocalls or whatever, like I mentioned, to just let primary voters know this is not you. And as you and I texted about earlier in the week, Jeremy, it's often the case that you have voters who just haven't paid as close attention. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're stupid or anything. Or that maybe they just don't know that when they walk in the voting booth and they see Rick Perry as an option, they may not know that that's not the Rick Perry that they're thinking yeah. of, right? And you might have some people who would look at the choices that are there. They might not be happy with Abbott. They might not like the other choices like Huffines or West or Prather. And they might see the name Rick Perry and say, oh, well, I like him and pick that person. It would be a small amount of people who would probably do that in a Republican primary because I think most primary voters are going to know that that's not Governor Perry, especially if he you know, forcefully comes out and says something. At the same time, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. If Abbott is having a hard time getting to 50%, on election day, if only 1% of voters did what I just said and picked Perry just sort of as a default because they don't like any of these other names, that's why it causes an issue for Abbott. Yeah, absolutely. If you get a, a situation where, you know, you, I, I can imagine a, a scenario where, you know, 40-something percent of, you know, Republicans in that primary, you know, vote for West or Huffines or somebody else. And yeah, that Perry mm-hmm. is just going to be an attraction. Now, th- Now, the good news is that, you know, it's been a long time since anybody has seen Rick Perry on a ballot. You know, it's like, you know, we got to remember, it, we're going back to 2010, right? And since the last time we saw yes. him on a ballot. And so that's like, you know, voters, you know, most voters are going to know, you know, that it's it can't be that Rick Perry. And they might even think that's like an ancient name anyhow and don't have as much of a recollection of it. You know, it's amazing in politics, you know, 10 years is, you know, a long time, <laughs> you know, to, yes. and to, to think that 12 years later, uh, you know, even if Perry himself were to run, he would still face a challenge. Like this would be tough for him. Yeah. You know, he'd have to kind of tell, right. as we've talked about on the show a million times, mostly because of me, I guess, but like there's been so many new people who have come into the vote, you know, into the electorate that have no idea, uh, you know, they, they never even voted for Abbott before until this year. You know, this will be their first, mm-hmm. first chance to have him on a ballot, let alone people who voted sure. for Rick Perry. And nobody remembers George W. Bush. You know, it's like it, you go. It's amazing how far back you can go. And just because of yeah. how much change this state has been under politically and how many new people have come in. It's like, yeah, I don't know. So I, I think 
I would assume most people are going to know this is not the same Rick Perry. And even if they, you know, they saw the name, they go, I recognize that, but I don't have any association with it. So I'm going to vote for, you know, who I was going to choose anyhow. Right. What was this drama in Houston with Democrats filing against Congresswoman uh, Lizzie Fletcher? Yeah, what, what? There, there was, uh, I think, one. I saw a headline from you in the Houston Chronicle about uh, a pretty large donor to Democrats who had gotten into the race and then withdrew. And there was a lot of uh, back and forth about it. What oh, my God. On? That was a nutty 24 hours. You know, there was one point where I was sitting there going, you know, Lizzie Fletcher, who, you know, represents Houston, of course, uh, was, you know, she, yeah. right now her district includes a lot of the energy corridor. So she's been a little bit more conservative on some of those issues. Uh, but so they redrew her district uh, and made it more more democratic. You know, which to me opened the door and they made it more democratic and far more mm-hmm. diverse. And so she's getting a whole hunk of Fort Bend County that's going to be very different. I had never heard of her before mm-hmm. and maybe never had a chance to vote for her. So she has new people to introduce right. herself to. Well, that mm-hmm. turned out to be an open door. So you had two candidates who end up, you know, filing to run against her. Uh, one of them was uh, Mohammed Tahir Javed. Uh, that name might f- sound familiar to some people in Houston because it was just in 2018 that he spent a million dollars of his own money to try to beat Sylvia Garcia, uh, the Democrat who now represents the East End. Like he spent a million dollars in that race and ended up getting like, you know, I think it was like just over 20 percent of the vote, despite nobody knowing who he was prior to him filing to run. So he showed he could, you know, pick up 20 thousand twenty percent of the vote in a very short period of time in a very hispanic district with the name tahir javet <laughs> well here now he saw this little district you know that includes parts of you know fort bend county which has a large asian population in fact it has the largest asian population of any congressional district in the state of texas so he's like i'm gonna run now he's got some really serious you know financial you know, connections in the Democratic Party. He works with the DNC. He's a big fundraiser for them. He, you know, hosted fundraisers for Hillary Clinton in the past. He's had audiences with Joe Biden. And you name the elected official, like he's on first name basis with Chuck Schumer and, you know, Nancy right. Pelosi and all of them. But he started getting mm-hmm. a ton of pressure once he filed. You know, it's like he, t- I talked to him on, you know, Tuesday after he had filed and he said, I'm getting a ton of pressure to get out. And his actually his his uh, text to me was, uh, I think everybody wants me out of this race, LOL. <laughs> but he told me, <laughs> okay. then he got on the line with yeah. me and told me, I'm staying in and I'm not going anywhere. Uh, a couple yeah. hours later, I called him, you know, after the pressure was heating up on him. He said, I know I'm still in. I'm not going anywhere. And then yeah. right as the deadline hit, when, you ha- you know, if you want to withdraw, you could get out. He He sent me a text and said, getting out. And that was it. And, so and that's it. The Done. pressure from D.C. Democrats we know was pretty intense. Yeah, you know, he was going to stick mm-hmm. in there for a while, but ultimately, you know, and, and this, and goes to what we know about what happens in D.C. You know, think about it as you know when incumbents are up for re-election, the 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 Democratic National Committee or the Democratic you know, committees in the House and in the Senate, their number one priority mm-hmm. is to protect their incumbents. It doesn't matter who they are. Right. You know, they will protect the incumbents first before they even go into, you know, trying to pick up swing seats or whatever. And that, that it's the same thing for the Republican. You protect your own first and then you worry about the rest of the field. So it's no surprise that, you know, a big donor who has lots of connections could file and he would still face pressure, you know, from other Democrats saying, look, if you get in this, you know, there's going to be repercussions. And so you had yeah. that happen. So. After all the drama was done, he dropped out. The other candidate dropped out. And now Lizzie Fletcher has a free path in the primary. Mm-hmm. No primary opponent at all. She'll just advance to the November general election uh, in a district in which she should be favored win because it's much more Democratic than it had been when she won in her previous two terms. Yeah, you know, and structurally, just sitting here thinking about it, uh, these groups like the Freedom Caucus on the right or the squad on the left, if you will, um, it's... It's something that really complicates things for leadership for a variety of reasons. And one of them is that the organizations you're talking about are set up to do exactly what you said. Once a person is elected, if they're a Freedom Caucus member, those groups are there and the the speaker or the minority leaders uh, team is there to help you. 
And basically, a lot of these folks who would be the challengers in primaries are giving them the middle finger and saying, I don't I don't want your help. Um, and they have incumbents who don't want that help. So that's not Lizzie Fletcher, but that's somebody like Louis Gohmert in the House who's now retiring to run for attorney general. It strikes me now to be able to say in the year of our Lord, 2021, Louis Gohmert is retiring from the U.S. House yeah, of Representatives. It's crazy to think it, him not being there. End of an era, right? Um, but for all of these people who are in office, once they get past the gauntlet of the primary and then they get through the general election, those groups are there and the leadership is there to welcome them with open arms and say, look, we're we're here to protect you now, right? Yeah. And a lot of them who are going now just want to flip that script completely and tell them uh, you know, where they can shove it. Um, the latest COVID numbers in Texas, as we round out the year here, Jeremy, we had saw, we had seen last week uh, where we did have some increases in different parts of the state. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Peter Hotez is the infectious disease expert or the, the notable infectious disease expert, top, uh, top guy at the Baylor College of Medicine. And he spoke with CBS Austin reporter Christian Flores about what you need to do, including whether you should really go ahead and get that booster shot if you have not done that already two doses of the vaccine, of the mRNA vaccine, that as, as that starts to decline, that does not give you a very impressive level of protection against the Omicron variant. And that's why you need that third immunization, because it'll give you a 30 to 40 fold rise in virus neutralizing antibody titers. And the UK government now reports in a, in a, in a briefing sent last Friday, last week, that it gives about 70 to 75% protection against symptomatic illness. Not as good as we'd like, but at least, you know, there's, there's some, some indication of protection. How long it holds up, I'm not certain. But I think the key message here is whether or not you're worried about Delta or worried about Omicron, the approach is the same. Get that third immunization. That's going to be really important. What are the numbers looking like, Jeremy, as we uh, round up this year? I mean, we're, we're going into the last uh, two weeks of 2021. By the time we talk to people again here on the show, it will be January of 2022. And people will have had their, the, the, you know, their last holiday gatherings. I know right now in Austin, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, everywhere, uh, people are doing Christmas parties. People are about to get on the road if they haven't already to go see family and all of that. What are they facing? Well, it's a lot better than where we were a year ago, for sure. You know, like before we go anywhere, <laughs> like people should know that. Like this isn't a time for panic, right? We have far, you know, we're not going to hit that 14,000 people, you know, in hospitals like we had at that one point, you know, last uh, January. But what we do right. have is we, we're, we're, up, we're back up to about 3,000 people hospitalized throughout the state of Texas. The really hot spots have been in Amarillo and El Paso over the last week or so. Uh, you know, they're really having shortages up there and lots of concerns come from their health departments. But so we're, we're looking at you know, about 3,000, you know, statewide, uh, which is up from where we were a month ago. Uh, but again, far short of where we were, you know, last year at this time. So that's good news. Um, but we're still having a lot of deaths. You know, it's like the, the, the state of Texas, you know, reported another, you know, basically it's been like 90 deaths a day that they've been adding to the total. So we're up over 73,000. There's no doubt we'll get over 74,000 by the time the holiday season's done. Uh, so it's, it's like, it's just hard to, you got to put that in context. 74,000 people right. have lost their mm-hmm. lives to this thing in Texas. You know, no matter if they had some other pre existing condition or other issues, it's still like you have to swallow this in going, wow, 74,000 people are gone. You know, that's yeah. quite the population. So, uh, so yeah, the numbers Absolutely. are still, you know, rough. You just, I kind of hope for some day where we say, wow, you know, nobody died from COVID this week. You know, it'd be nice to kind of yeah. actually save that for a change. Yeah, and we're not there yet. So I hope people are able to celebrate with their loved ones, but do uh, take the precautions necessary to keep people safe as you can. That is enough show for this show that I've already declared is enough shows for 2021. If you love this show and can't get enough, you will be pleased to hear this. Jeremy, we have signed the agreement. Quorum Report and the Houston Chronicle will continue the show through 2022. We did that just this last week which I announced on social media. People are excited about that because look, with everything going on, I mean, 2022 is actually an election year with all this stuff happening. All the things we've talked about, this is, um, like you said at the beginning of the show, it should have been maybe a little more low key, but no. So this kind of news and analysis will be even more important as we go 
into this next month and through the next year, all the way through the next election. You should be a subscriber to the show. So you'll get all of that. I mean, I'm promising you right now, sort of Governor Abbott style. I can guarantee that these shows are must listen through all of 2022. So you should be subscribing to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. You should uh, give us the best rating that you can. If you give us a terrible rating, be sure to write a review so I understand why you didn't like it. Don't just give the one star and, and leave. It's like a drive-by review. Don't do that. A drive-by rating, don't do that. Give us, give us a full rundown of why you don't like it or why you do. We appreciate it. Subscribe at uh, quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you in the new year.